Welcome to the latest episode of The Grower and the Economist. I'm Michelle Klieger, The Economist. And I'm Peter Conjoyan, The Grower. Each week, we team up to tackle the biggest challenges facing small and medium-sized growers. We're one part grower and one part economist, just like your business. Well, today's topic is a special topic for me and my guests. Um, We're going to discuss how growers can properly and effectively design and execute trials and experiments on their farm and or greenhouse. Our guest is Dr. Brian Krug, who is currently at Pioneer Seeds in Iowa. Brian, you and I go back quite a ways. I'm going to let you introduce yourself, and then we'll bring Michelle into this uh, topic and conversation and uh, have some fun. All right. Well, well thanks, Peter. And uh, um, we a- I actually am not at Pioneer Seeds. That was our old name. Um, our new name is Corteva AgriScience. Um, we still have the brand Pioneer, but the, the company has a new name. Um, but uh, we're still getting used to it ourselves, too. Um, so just to introduce myself a little bit, um, I, like Peter said, I, I work at or Corteva AgriScience, and I manage a, t- a team of about uh, eight or nine people that we work in the greenhouse. We manage the, the plant quality, so that involves the, uh, um, the environmental controls, the irrigation, the fertilization, um, pest management, um, basically just growing the plants. To a, to a greenhouse grower, I would be considered kind of the head grower um, for, um, to, to make that analogy. Um, I went to North Carolina State University for my um, um, master's and PhD and Iowa State University for my undergrad. Um, and before coming to Corteva AgriScience, I worked at the University of New Hampshire um, up there in, in Peter's backyard. Um, but I met Peter um, almost 20 years ago um, when I was a greenhouse grower um, just out of college um, working at an ornamental greenhouse. Um, and when he was doing his floriculture newsletter um, around Florel, and uh, that's how our, our um, conversation started um, with me doing an uh, in-house research um, or experiment with, with Florel. And I was calling Peter to get some some advice and, and guidance doing that. And we've had a really strong relationship since then, Brian. It was really convenient and fun for me to have you here in my backyard during your years at UNH on the faculty. And uh, we've had a chance to catch up. Um, for those listening, uh, when you mentioned the product Florel, um, I did a lot of work with that material, which is essentially the plant hormone ethylene. And I spent about 20 years of my research career um, researching ethylene and its effects on crops. And as Brian said, 20 years ago, it brought the two of us together and um, we've we've, uh, enjoyed our collaborative relationship ever since. So the topic, Brian, um, if I remember correctly, you hatched this topic while you were here at UNH. And you and I have spoken at uh, a couple of National Greenhouse uh, Association conferences, and we've written articles on this topic of on-site trials and experiments. So why don't you give us a little bit of background on how you came up with the idea and any other thoughts 
as we dig into some of the uh, details and specifics? Yeah, so my time at, at University of New Hampshire when this idea kind of came up was when I was working in cooperative extension and I was um, visiting a lot of greenhouses um, within New England and, and throughout the country. And, you know, it's, it's really typical to see growers testing out new products um, or, you know, kind of investigating those and, and seeing how they work for them because um, like there's always new products to test out. And, and what I was seeing is that growers weren't always taking um, the most objective approach to those trials so that they um, got real good data um, to, to help them make their decision. Um, and I thought back to that first phone call that I had with Peter um, years before that, and I was making the same mistakes that they were. And, and it was Peter who kind of helped me figure that out. Um, so the, um, that's where that that partnership came from to do these talks. Um, so giving these growers the guidance um, that, that they didn't have, um, just like I didn't, um, how to conduct these, these trials so that they good good data so they can make real objective decisions. And Michelle, just to, to kind of bring you in um, and, and get your initial thoughts on this, um, Brian and I have seen, as, as he um, cited, We've seen many, many trials that fellow growers have conducted in their greenhouses and on their farms. And what led us to dive into this topic was so many of them being conducted improperly so that while they were making decisions, we felt that they could be better informed if we could teach them and share with them. Not Michelle, this is not a case of us trying to turn growers into scientists, so, so we want to make that clear, but it's just some basic principles. It's really a discussion of the scientific method that brings all of us back to our middle school or junior high school science classes. So, Michelle, let, let me give you an opportunity to, to jump in. Perhaps you've seen a little bit of this in your economic uh, um, research and, and dealing with um, business owners. So go ahead. Yeah. When you and I um, met to talk about our first duet article, that was, this was one of the topics we covered was how to conduct trials. Um, a lot of the vertical farm and indoor growers that I was working with were picking varieties and, and not really having good logs of how they were performing or, you know, having other comparing it to other varieties and making those informed decisions. And um, one, glad Brian's here, because I think that he can probably speak to the trials much better. But I think that adding the economic perspective is the value in the trials is that you get to, when conducted correctly, you can see your only variable would be the variety or would be the light or would be this one feature. And you can see how it changes your output. Um, and how that output impacts your final economics. Are you trying to increase your yield so you have more to sell? Are you trying to, you know, have a different variety that is better received by your customer and has a premium? Are you like, what are these problems that you're trying to solve and how do they lower your marginal costs? Well said. Hey, Brian, before I hand it over to you, I, I think you can sense uh, very quickly how much fun Michelle and I are having 
collaborating and working together and that dimension that she's able to bring to growers, that economic analysis that you and I have been taught in our writing and speaking not to leave a um, a uh, conference presentation or not to end an article without adding the layer of the economics of whatever we're talking about. Exactly. So why don't why don't you go ahead get us started on on uh, this trial? You do a real nice job explaining treatments and variables and whatnot. And Michelle, feel free to jump in at any point. And uh, otherwise, Brian and I have a tag team that I think we could do with our eyes closed. So Brian, get us started, please. Yeah, so um, you know, Michelle, you made the, the great observation there of, of where we have to start. And that's um, like having a good objective. Like, what are we trying to get from this? Um, and having that really clearly laid out. Um, too many times I talk to growers and their objective is, I wanna have, I wanna test this out to see if I grow better plants. Well, growing better plants is a pretty broad, ambiguous, um, subjective um, objective. Um, so you really want to define, like, do I want to have plants that have a faster cycle time? Do I want to have plants that have more flower power um, or better yield, depending on, on what you're growing? Um, do I want to have plants that are shorter? Do I want to have plants that are taller? Really defining what you mean by better. Um, that's that's really the, the first and foremost thing that, that we need to determine. Um, if we try to do something really broad, um, we're not going to get a really good result. And Brian, a lot of this um, we have to share with growers that um, they're bombarded by either salespersons or advertisings, promotions, trade shows. And there's um, you can't believe everything that is being thrown at you. Correct. So so the grower is faced with what do I believe, what not, what do I not what do I believe? What do I not believe? So can you comment on that part of it? It's really confusing for a lot of our fellow growers. Yeah. And, and I think you're right. And it's not always necessarily, should I believe it or should I not believe it? Um, it's, you know, once you know how a trial should be conducted or, you know, the basics of it, you, you know how to evaluate somebody else's claims. Um, you know, did they have a clear objective? Um, are they being specific about what they mean by better plants? If if a advertiser comes or a new company comes and says like, "Hey, you can grow better plants by using my product," I, I think you know the question that the grower should be asking again is like, "What do you mean by better plants? Um, do you um, you know is it yield? Is it taller? Is it faster growing?" Um, and that can start that uh, that decision making process without even doing your own trials is is asking the the questions of of that sales rep to really validate their experiments in, in their trials um, and then so the next step then is is looking at the variables and um, I run into this a lot too like once you've figured out what your objective is what's your variable and making sure that you have only one variable at a time. And what do I mean by the variable is, is what are you testing? Um, if you're going to test a new fertilizer, then test only the fertilizer. Don't have, um, don't test it on one crop 
and another crop with your as your control um, or don't grow it in one greenhouse and have your old fertilizer grown in another greenhouse on a different crop. Um, make sure that you have everything the same except for one variable. And as you've identified that variable and as you've asked those questions about how it's going to be a better plant, I think before you start, you can do some back of the envelope calculations to see what it's going to cost you, right? Because if you're going to switch to a more expensive variety or more expensive fertilizer or whatever it is, it might pay off, but if you can, or it might not, right? We are generally very focused on yield. And sometimes we forget all of the costs that go into that higher yield and whether that actually exceeds revenue or not. That's a great point, Michelle. And you know, much of these uh, trials and experiments that we're doing uh, Brian, I, I think you might agree. We, we we look at or focus on one of two things. Are we going to do something to make the crop better so that we can get a higher selling price, Michelle? Or are we going to do something and make a change so that we can cut the production cost? Either one of those increases our profit margin. And you're really not going to make any kind of change unless you are addressing one of those two objectives, right? Yeah, and, and I, I like, Michelle, like what you said is, is doing that back of the envelope calculation even before you do the, 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 the trial. Because if, if you're saying, for instance, hey, I, I'm going to increase my night temperature by five degrees to get a higher yield, what does that cost you to do? You might, even, you might find out before you even do the experiment that it's just not worth the cost. Um, it, it might give you a higher yield but, um, or a faster cycle time, but it's going to cost you too much to even make it worth doing that experiment. That's a good point. So, so Brian, as, as you get into the variables and now shift in, and uh, kind of uh, move on into uh, treatments, talk a little bit about treatment, and then I'm going to jump in with... Um, some explanation of the one, the magic word that I heard you use a minute ago, and that's the word control. So I'll jump in in a few minutes. Go ahead and start us off. I know you like to talk about there, there's kind of a Goldilocks um, part or dimension to this in terms of setting up trials. Don't make it too big. Don't make it too small. So go ahead and talk to us a little bit about um, shifting from the actual variable that we're testing into uh, treatment options. Yeah, so there's a couple of different treatment options um, depending on what you're looking at. A really easy one is like let's look at a fertilizer um, if, if that's your your variable. Um, so sometimes you might want to have a couple of variables there if you're trying a new fertilizer. Obviously, you're going to have this this new product, but what is the correct rate of that new product? So I'll use a, a greenhouse example. I'm going to try a fertilizer, and I might try it at you know, 150 parts per million, 200 parts per million, and 250 parts per million. That gives me a little bit of a range of realistic fertility rates that I might be testing to see how that fertilizer responds uh, or how the plants respond to that fertilizer over a different rate. Um, you might be looking at light, and, and sometimes, you know, especially now, people are looking at LED lights versus hypersodium lights. So it might be just a, um, a one or the other, 
but you want to make sure that your HPS light level and your LED light level is the same so that your variable is, is your light source, not your light intensity. You know, I kind of like to have a, at least two very or like two rates of something. Um, like when I'm talking with fertilizer or plant growth re- regulators, is it the like a half rate, a full rate, and maybe a, a 1.5 rate. You know, a, a yes no is sometimes hard with a with a fertilizer. You're looking at different rates, and then I'll, I'll turn it over to you with controls because that was the first lesson I learned from you back in the days of Florel. 20 years ago in our first conversation. Okay, so so this word control uh, to to a scientist, a researcher like Brian and myself and, and Michelle as an economist, we, we all, um, we, we were involved in science and uh, with economics, it's it's math, it's, it's black and white, yes and no's, the numbers don't lie. So I like to present this topic as um, talking about the word control And there are two meanings of the word control that we need to understand and embrace and practice in order to execute good sound trials and experiments. And the first meaning of the word control, I'm going to say is more of an umbrella. It's an overarching effect, meaning if we're going to design a trial, as Brian is, un, is, is, is building for us, looking at fertilizers, different rates, et cetera, we need to execute this in a sound way. We have to have control of it, meaning uh, it might be the same person that applies both rates of fertilizer. That's good control so that let's say we had two different people applying the fertilizers out in a field setting. Um, is it accurate? Are both of those individuals applying what they're supposed to apply? So that level of control is just paying attention to details. Um, I like to to use um, the um, example, Brian, if if we are looking at, uh, let's say, different soils or different growing mixes for a potted experiment in the greenhouse, you and I know that these Pot, commercial potting soils are engineered to have different water holding capacities and aeration properties, etc. So if we were doing um, an experiment on a potted crop, let's say it's geraniums in the spring um, greenhouse season, and we're looking at two different potting soils, and we're trying to pick the better one, or we're comparing a new one to what we're currently using, um, I would say it's really important that they're not all watered on the same automatic irrigation zone, because if one of the mixes holds more water, yet it's getting exactly the same amount of drip irrigation as the other treatment that has a mix that doesn't hold as much water, you can see where bias and experimental error can be introduced into the trial. Brian, I'm going to let you comment on that, and then I'll go into the second meaning of the word control. Yeah, and, and that's a perfect example, Peter. I've, I've seen that um, numerous times with with choosing a new substrate, and growers make that exact mistake is, They'll say like, well, this new substrate doesn't work as good as my old substrate, so I'm not going to change. It's like, well, you didn't change your watering practices. You have to water it when it's needed, not when each one is needed, not how you just water your old one. 
I think there's other examples of that, of really treating the plant as consistent as as you would from treatment to treatment. And the only thing that's different is that treatment. So, Michelle, this this is critical. It's a really important, you know, basic science part of setting up trials and experiments. This is this umbrella meaning of the word control. Do you have anything you want to jump in on? I mean, yeah, I think that in general, I agree on the importance of of a controlled experiment because it lets you see how, um, you know, how each variable is changing and that lets you, you know, make an informed decision. I think it was interesting and maybe I misunderstood that, you know, when you changed the lights, that the watering changed um, or that, you, you know, your goal was to maintain the same level of moisture. And so that had an impact. So it's kind of interesting, um, something that I never thought about that even in these trials, there might be implications that you need to note um, in your effort to maintain the sameness across the trials. Well, yeah, just another example of that is when I've done fertilizer trials in the past, you know, I might be growing that geranium plant at 50, 100, 150, and 200 parts per million. Well, I, the substrate's the same, the pot's the same, the, the, they're in the same greenhouse, and it's the same cultivar, but that, that plant that's grown at 200 parts per million needs to be watered more than the one at 50 parts per million because it's just growing faster. There's more biomass, there's more leaves, there's more transpiration. So you have to water that differently, um, even in a fertilizer trial, than some of your other treatments. That, that's an excellent point. Brian, thank, thank you for bringing that up. And, you know, that I, we don't want our listeners to, to feel overwhelmed. So, so we're, we're talking about so many things that can go wrong and introduce bias. And I want to keep coming back to, Brian, one of your original comment that, that, that it can't be too big of a trial and, and it's got to be big enough to learn something. We, we need to be able to keep this control that I'm talking about. So well done, all, all three of us on that. Let me shift now. The second meaning of the word control in research or an experiment is that the word control refers to a treatment that is, uh, let's say in, in Brian's description of trying new fertilizers or different fertilizers, in that case, the control treatment would be the existing fertilizer, the one that the grower is currently using as standard practice. The control treatment is the treatment that all other experimental treatments are going to be compared to. And this is so important. I want to be able, I want to give both of you a chance to throw your two cents in on on this, the, the topic of a control treatment. So Brian, why don't you start and then Michelle, you can add your, your uh, thoughts. Yeah, and, and it's, it's different for every um, experiment because like you said, if it's a fertilizer experiment, um, it's, it's what you normally use. What's your, what's your current common practice? If it's a, say a plant growth regulator um, or a pesticide experiment, your control is nothing. It's it's the absence of that new product. So if it's say a, a paclobutrazol trial, it's it's zero application of paclobutrazol is your is your control. If you did a zero treatment for fertilizer, 
that control is not going to perform at all because you need some fertilizer there. And then like if you're testing the use of supplemental light versus no supplemental light because you don't use it right now, your your control is is no supplemental light. Your control is natural light. If you're comparing HPS lights to LED lights, your control is your HPS lights, the way you're now um, commonly producing your plants. Good. Michelle, so we have to remind our listeners that I, I, I usually refer to you as our economist, but your background also includes animal science and seed genetics and whatnot. So, so you're as scientific as Brian and I are. Um, why don't, how do you feel about this topic of the experimental control the, the, in terms of at the treatment level? Well, I kind of want to continue on from where Brian was talking, right? And and how he outlined the controls. And and I'll dry that back to, I will tie that back to the the economics of it, I think. So one, we talked about the cost of input. So if you're changing the amount of water that's being applied, even if it's not your direct intent, right? Um, your water costs go up, your fertilizer costs might go up. So understanding the cost side of it, but then also thinking through the, um, the revenue side of it. Are you producing more biomass? Can your current supply chain handle that? If you're changing the variety, do they want the new variety? If you're changing a fertilizer, like did you used to have an OMRI certified one and now you don't? And so your business decisions need to, one, work in a way that makes your marginal cost feasible, right, to keep your costs down and help you be profitable. But two, if you increase your output or change your products or change your specialty, you need to make sure that those markets are there. And so um, all of those are totally outside of the science of how to run an experiment. But I think that if you're going to go through all of the effort to put these, you know, well-run experiments together, that thinking through the markets that you're going to sell to, as well as the cost you're going to incur, is a valuable part of the exercise. Yeah, I think that's a, a really, really good point. And I think about poinsettia production. You know, there's always these um, field days of looking at the newest poinsettia cultivars out there. And as growers, we often look at these new cultivars, new varieties of, of anything that we grow from a, from a grower perspective. Like, oh, this one requires less fertilizer to produce the plant or it um, has a better growth habit um, for me to in a production setting. But that doesn't always translate to the consumer's desires. Um, you know, like, or I really like that red color. Well, the consumers might not. Um, so changing changing something because it makes it more efficient to grow might not matter. Just like Michelle says, because if, if you can't sell it, um, it's not more efficient. And I think that's a lot of the conversation that I've been having on the grain side of it is that there are lots of ways that we have increased on-farm efficiencies um, and automation. And I'm sure it, ha it you know, is happening again on the vegetable and produce side as well, there are automations, there are ways to, you know, make the farmer's life easier. And that is really important. I'm not downplaying how difficult these jobs are. 
Um, but some of the efficiencies do come with, um, you know, results that, that consumers are not happy about, or consumers are signaling that they're willing to pay more for specific practices. And so that, I guess, is another way that you could consider what else you want to grow. Um, if you wanted to run a test, maybe you're not comparing two inputs, but you are, you know, comparing some other feature that a, that a, um, that a consumer might want. And so you're going to run a small test to see, can you sell this new product or can you grow it in a way that makes sense? And so you can start from any point. You can start from a salesperson came to me with this great product. Does it fit into my farm? Or you can start from the other side. A consumer came to me asking for this product or asking for this production method. Can I make it work? And how do then does that change my operation? And you can test it through with the these controlled experiments. Yeah, the perfect examples for for this is um, say tomatoes or roses. You know, the growers over the last decades have gone to roses or tomatoes that have good shelf life or ship well or are easy to grow. And what did what does everybody know we lost? Like the flavor or the scent. Um, and consumers um, really miss that or they, they choose a different product because they want that flavor of that tomato or they want that scent of a rose. You guys are making it so easy to have uh, fun in this conversation today. Um, let me, I'm going to wrap up our segment on control with a, a little story that Brian alluded to earlier. And then, Brian, let's move on to uh, some of your thoughts on data collection and and uh, just moving that process along through a trial and, and, and an experiment. So over the course of this research I conducted on with ethylene, the trade name of the product Brian mentioned is Florel. So during the 20 years I was um, conducting my research, this was through the 80s, 90s, into the beginning of this century, there were many, many telephone conversations that I would take from fellow growers around the country in Canada. And one of the things that, Brian, I think you were um, alluding to a few minutes ago is a story that I enjoy telling, and it's so appropriate for this concept of what a controlled treatment is. I, would, I took, Michelle, so many calls from growers. It might have been in the heat of the growing season, and let me use um, a greenhouse crop, spring flowering, hanging baskets as the example for, for this part of the discussion. So I take a call and a grower might say, oh, and by the way, I should set the table a little bit better. Using ethylene, using this product Florel, we would spray hanging baskets early in the crop cycle. And the ethylene would stimulate branching so that we wouldn't have to trim and pinch the plants by hand. And it would delay flower initiation so that during the early part of the season, when we want the hanging basket to be bigger and create bulk, we don't necessarily want flowers. We would use Florel early on and it would prevent the initiation of flowers. So it would stimulate vegetative growth. All right. So now we understand our listeners know what, what, what we were doing and applying it for. I would take uh, calls during the uh, end of the growing season and it would go something like this. Um, Hello, Peter. I, um, I have a couple of questions I'd like to ask you on some hanging baskets I treated with Florel. 
Um, there, and an observation from the grower would be either, oh, they're not going to flower in time, or they flower too early, or you know something is not what I thought I was supposed to get. And the first question, Michelle, that I would ask, and and I usually ask this as a question. I would say, Michelle, what's the first question I would ask? Or if it's in front of a, a conference and, and growers in the audience, I'd stop and, and pause and say, now, what's the first question I ask this grower on the phone? And uh, the question is, um, how do your floral treated baskets compare to your untreated controls? And the, the amusing part of this, Michelle, is, so many times, I'm going to say 99 out of 100, and I took literally hundreds of calls over many years on this, the, the, there would be a pause on the other end of the phone, and then the grower would say, oh, Peter, I trusted you. I just sprayed everything, so I don't have any untreated baskets. And that's, that's a, um, like a life lesson. It's a, a moment where a teachable moment that is so appropriate to today's discussion. So, Brian, you've you've run across this in your travels, I'm sure, as well, where growers just treat everything or don't have proper controls. Right. And that's the exact conversation that I had with Peter. My, my first phone call with Peter was that exact conversation. <laughs> um, and I, that was my exact response. I said, you treated all of them? I did, because Peter told me that, that I read an article that Peter wrote that said that it worked so well that I just went for it. <laughs> um, and... and that was my teachable moment with Peter. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, and I've seen it a number of times with with growers over the years too. That you know, that's that's one of the failure modes, um, and you don't know if if the conditions of that year were just conducive to get the results that they wanted, or if it was actually the treatment that they applied that gave them the results that they wanted. So, um, you you can't make a, an objective decision without that control. Um, treatment in there. And uh, another thing, just to cap off this part of the the uh, discussion, Michelle, um, it's very important that growers label, 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 because when a treatment is made in this a scenario, a hanging basket that's being sold in May, yet the treatment might have been applied in February and March, if the plants aren't labeled so that we know how it was treat, how they were treated. Um, we're human. We forget. So label, 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 and have the control so that at the point of sales, um, we can make an informed comparison and a discussion. So enough of that. But um, that word control with those that dual um, uh, meaning is key. It's central to conducting good, good science. Brian, why don't you take us forward now? Let's say we've... Um, decided on the variable. We've created the number of treatments that we uh, want to look at. Um, go, what's, what are the next steps? Well, um, you, know, you mentioned labeling, and, and I would go a, a step farther and say document, document, document. Um, labeling your individual plants is really smart, but um, you know, documenting what day you treated them, what your different treatments were, um, because you want to be able to reproduce this a year from now with the right um, with the right treatment that was was the best one. So, and document everything so that you can um, write of an informal report at the end of the experiment. You know, it doesn't have to be a, a book, but a one page 
explanation of what you did and and what the results were so that you can refer to that in the future is really important. Um, but the, the next step, once you figured out your, your treatments is, um, what type of data are you going to collect and, and really be judicious on, on what you choose because, um, you'll read the, um, you know, different stuff in the grower magazines of, you know, this researcher collected the, the, um, the fresh weight, the dry weight, the root weight, the root um, area, the leaf area, the dates to flower. And that's all really good information. But what they don't um, really make it clear is that that's their job to create that data. Um, and they have you know graduate students and research assistants to, to help with all of that data collection. And it takes a lot of time. Um, and so make a decision of like, what data do you really, really need to take? Because the, the other failure mode that I see is, okay, I want to take these seven different data points um, on this experiment. And then when it gets into the heat of this, the springtime, when, when you're trying to sell stuff, you don't have time to take seven data points on every single plant that you take or that you're treating. Um, and you know, which data point really matters, um, which what's manageable for you and your staff to, to take that data on. Um, you don't want to go through the effort of treating all these plants, taking care of them in a controlled way, and then not take all the data. And then it's, um, it's, it's not a useful experiment anymore. That's such a good point, Brian. And it, it can create such frustration that, a grower might either walk away from the trial after investing all that time and effort, or he or she would rush and might not be accurate enough and might not, you know, gain any meaningful information. And so what you're describing is part of that, that umbrella level of control, you know, just don't try to do too much in terms of the data you're going to collect. And uh, um, because, you know, Brian, this is how you, you and I, um, try to explain it to fellow growers. And, and you, you started laying it out really nicely by saying that in the scientific community at the university, we've got all kinds of we've got resources to do this. But a difference between the science at the university and the trial being done in a commercial greenhouse is that those plants need to be sold for a profit. And Michelle and I, Brian, have had lengthy discussions in previous episodes about product shrinkage and product loss. So when we're running a trial um, in a university to, to kind of take your fertilizer treatment and push that concept a little further, in the university, instead of three different rates, we might have five knowing that one is so low that the plants aren't going to be saleable and one is so high that it might burn the plants. Well, in the commercial setting, you can't afford to lose all those plants. So it speaks to what you're saying to us, um, be judicious um, and, and select your treatments uh, properly and then collect the, the, the appropriate data. I would also like to add that I think that it's important that you pointed out that there seems to be almost an unlimited number of data points that you can collect. And I think for a lot of people that might scare them away from doing the experiments and so, or starting these controlled experiments versus just taking the advice from an expert and applying the treatment to everything and moving on. And so being 
cognizant of, you know, what your limitations are or what you're willing to do and not using that as an excuse, not saying that it is too hard for me to collect all these data points or I'll never do it right or I don't have the time or I don't have a scientific background and walking away and making this manageable because the more maybe the more control you can get the better but eliminating some of the variability really is an important first step and i think that that's where new growers should start when they do these trials brian why don't you opened by saying um you know the reason that many growers do a trial run a conduct a trial is because they want a better product so perhaps this is a perfect place for you to, to define what that word better might mean or could mean, or, or use a couple of examples of a data point or two data points that could be collected, measured, um, that would address a better crop for a grower. Yeah, and, and uh, to, to take that and also kind of piggyback on what Michelle was just saying um, is to, to figure out what those data points are that you're going to take. Um, you know, have the conversation with yourself um, or with your staff to um, decide what would change your mind. Um, what do you need to see to change your mind? And that's your data point. Um, if it is, I need to see a, a, a faster cropping time, you know, time to market is your data point. And that's all you really need to see. Um, or if you need to see higher yields, that's that's your data point. Um, you know, that's that's something that's really been instilled in, to me with, with my current boss um, is, you know, create the storyline that you need to, to, to be convincing. Um, and you take that storyline to build your your experiment um, before you do it. Um, so, um, you know, to answer your question, Peter, is um, you know, decide what that is. If it is um, cycle time, you know, your um, your data point is going to be if you're a flower grower, like you know, what's your what's your first flower date of of your plant? Um, if you're you know a tomato grower, um, you know. What, what is your harvest date, your time from sowing to, to harvest date? Um, if you're looking for more compact plants, you know, height, height or diameter is, is your data point. You don't need a whole lot more than that. Um, and um, choosing those data points and, and when you're going to take them is, is really important, too. Um, is it halfway through the if, if it's a height or diameter, you might want to take that multiple times throughout the growth um, cycle. If it's harvest, you know, that's a pretty easy one. It's, it's the, um, when you sell it, or if it's, um, flowering, define what flowering is. Is it first color? Um, is it a f the first fully open plant uh, or flower? Um, is it when that plant is now saleable? Um, what does that mean to you? Saleable means a different thing for, for different growers. Some growers want to sell at first, at first color, other growers want to sell when the whole thing is, is completely bloomed. Well, well said. Now let's, in the interest of time and the conversation, Brian, let's keep pushing forward. Talk to us a little bit about replication. Yeah, so replication is what we do to take out any um, variables that we can't control. Um, so um, the, the most 
simple replication is just the, the number of plants. So instead of treating one plant um, with a different fertilizer rate, um, you know, you might choose to, to or you should choose to, to treat multiple plants. Um, and, you know, five or 10 plants might be the right amount for each treatment um, of replication. That's um, that kind of takes care of that variability. Um, if you're looking at something like temperature, um, that's a little bit harder to, to replicate because your treatment is the environment. Um, and um, you kind of need to re replicate that maybe over time um, or um, in different greenhouses if you have that capability. Um, I, I find temperature being one of the hardest things to replicate um, because most growers don't have the, the option to do this over time or um, uh, in different greenhouses. So a different way that you could do that is um, over time would be different planting weeks. So you do a, you're looking at temperature. So you plant things on, on week 10, week 11, week 12, you've just replicated that three times over time. And you can grow that in the same greenhouse um, with those, with those temperatures. M Michelle, Brian and I, in our, in our conference presentation, um, get to spend a little more time on this and we break out um, we create a couple of, uh, we could create two lists of variables that could be the source or focus of a trial and experiment. And one list includes variables that are difficult to study, replicate, as Brian's saying. And he's mentioned a couple already. Um, using light as a variable, different light sources, different day lengths, et cetera, using temperature as a variable, those are difficult for the reasons Brian's mentioning. You either need a lot of greenhouse compartments so that you can have two or three at each of the temperature set points, or you need different compartments so that each has a different light combination. And then the second list is the, the more day-to-day, -day, everyday, easier variables like irrigation regime, fertilizer levels, plant growth regulators. So again, the control on the list of difficult variables is difficult to practice. And we find that uh, Brian and I are trying to steer growers toward that other list that looks at more of the day-to-day non-environmental variables so that they can have the control and Brian, as, as they're replicating, and I'm going to say that the two of you I know are much better at statistics than I am. I describe my statistics skills as the Tin Man in The Wizard of Oz that's just frozen solid in the forest. So, so much of my research has been done without a lot of high-grade statistics, but because I feel I exercise really good experimental control, I don't feel that I've needed to use statistics as a tool every time I run an experiment. But Brian, explain I, the, the, the level at which I um, talk about statistics is I use the phrase, um, when we talk about replication and statistics, I use the phrase the power of three in terms of replicates. Would you address that a bit and then kind of take us through data collection and and uh, finally, we'll, we'll bring the conversation in for a landing to talk about um, interpreting data and making decisions. 
Well, I'll, I'll let you follow up on, on your power of three, because I'm not exactly sure what, what you're referring to, but, um, but I, I think statistics are important, but you don't need to get overly bogged down on them in, in this setting with a, a, a grower trial, um, because it's, um, it really comes down to back to what's, what's going to change your mind. Um, you know, you, know, you might get away with, um, you know, like what's just the average, um, of your treatment compared to the average of your other treatments. Um, and how much of a difference really matters to you in a, in a scientific publication, you know, we, we get down into like what's called statistically, um, significant, um, and I won't get into the, the boring details of that. Um, but, you know, with, with trials that I've done, especially with plant growth regulators, I might be able to show a statistical difference between um, two different treatments that are, you know, like um, three quarters of an inch difference in height. Well, as a grower, you don't really care about three quarters of an inch in, in height. That doesn't matter to you. So this determine what's um, significant for you. It, it might need to be like a, um, you know, a, a good rule of thumb for plant growth regulators is like, did it, did it control the height, um, by one third or more? Um, that's now practically commercially significant. Um, and, and to, to get that type of significance, you just really need a, a calculator and, um, maybe a spreadsheet and, and calculate the averages. That sounds Sounds good, Brian. When I mentioned that power three or the magic of three, um, you you try, explain for me. Let's you you mentioned if we're replicating a treatment that we'd like to have more than one plant or one pot representing a treatment. So we might go from one pot to two pots, which then allows us to average the response of the two pots, as you just mentioned, and then look at the average of the two. There's a lot of power gained when we go and jump from two replicates or observations per treatment to three. That's what I'm kind of referring to as the power of three, the magic of three. And, and then beyond three to four and five and six, there seems to be, and, and I'll ask both of you as statisticians um, how true this is, there's a big jump um, from two to three in terms of how much more accuracy we have in adding that third replicate. And then there's a diminishing uh, continued um, um, accuracy gained by the fourth and the fifth, but it diminishes. So why don't the two of you run with that for a moment? You wanna take a stab at it, Michelle? Well, I can tell you that I think that statistics isn't math and that it's this made up language that people use. Um, <laughs> so I don't know that I'm the best person. I think it makes sense though, right? If you just, are looking at it from a, like, if you're going for basic logic, right? That if you have one, if you have two, right? What, something could happen. Something could be different that you didn't realize, right? The odds of it working are 50%. And if you had three, now you need it to play out the same way multiple times. And so once you get there, once you have these independent results that are coming out the same, the more replications you have, the once you have multiple replications, you can see that it's true and it wasn't a fluke or there wasn't some compounding factor. And then once you get some comfort in your results, the more and more studies you have, 
you were already comfortable. And so you're just reproving it over and over again. And so that's to me where the cost benefit would come in. Yeah. And, and I agree. Like, um, you know, you're saying like statistics is a, is a made up language. Um, you know, it's a really good statistician can, um, can use their numbers to explain almost anything if you put it through enough analysis. Um, but, but it's back to like what matters to you. Um, and like that, that law of averages with like that power of three or that power of four um, really matters um, for the reasons that Michelle and, and Peter, you guys um, um, laid out. It's like if, if one plant dies and now you only have one data point, is, is that accurate? Um, is it really representative of what happened? Um, maybe the one that died was representative of what happened. You, you don't really know. So um, three, I think, is a, is a bare minimum. I find six replicates um, is, is a really sweet spot um, because it's, it's not too big. It's not too um, um, unwieldy, but it, it really gives you a lot of power um, for a lot of, of things. Now, if you start looking at things like lights versus no lights or environmental things like six replicates is, is really, really difficult to do. Um, and, and maybe um, two replications is, is enough because you have multiple plants within that replication over time um, or over greenhouses in that environment um, parameter to, to kind of even that out. Okay, thanks. That that helps helps me, and I I think hearing these different perspectives on the statistics and the replication that that's all good, and everybody can sift through what they feel they can control in their own farm field or or greenhouse. All right, Brian. Um, so that um, we can get you on your way this afternoon, why don't you bring us in uh, for a landing and? Say we've we've collected all these data points. We've run a good uh, controlled experiment with with proper treatments. Now we've got these numbers. Um, you've you've impressed on us that it has to be documented. So this stuff needs to be written down. Our listeners have had heard Michelle and I talk um, at length about recording and and uh, you know making sure that they have the information in their fingertips. So go ahead and, and bring this uh, bring this down. So, you know, one thing that I would mention, um, like when you're talking about like your replications and your, your treatments, um, I'm, I'm going to give my shameless plug to Cooperative Extension, um, that they're really there to help you. So if you feel like you're, you're not um, qualified to make some of these decisions for yourself, call up your local um, extension specialist and, and talk through these treatments and your experimental design. They're not going to be able to do it for you, but they can at least um, like talk to you and say like, yep, this sounds like a really good laid out experiment. Um, I, I would feel confident in the results of this. Um, I, I think that you're going to find that, that they're going to be more than happy to, to help you. Um, so, um, the, to to kind of wrap this up, you know, make sure that you follow through. There's so much pressure to sell your plants at the end of the season, and you have to. But don't sell those plants without taking that data. Um, you, know, you don't get caught up in the springtime um, rush. Give yourself the time to to pause and take that data because it is so important to your operation. If if you think that this 
whatever trial you're going to do is going to increase your yields by 10% or reduce your, your costs by, um, by 10 or 15%. That's a real um, um, effect on your bottom line. Um, so it is worth you taking um, an hour or two or half a day pause from your daily activities to take that data um, you don't have to maybe um, analyze it and write the report in May or April, but take that data because otherwise you put all that effort into something um, that you're not going to get that benefit from. So don't sell that without don't sell that product without taking the data. Make sure that it's labeled on the bench really well, so somebody in your on your staff doesn't start pulling from that bench or or from that row that that you need to get the harvest data from. Um, without getting that data first. Um, it's just a tragic loss to go to all the effort with, without getting that data. I thought that as, you know, just to, to pull out something you just said, um, that you said you don't have to do it in May, right? We all understand that there are really busy times of the year, but there are also slower times. And so collecting the data, you know, sort of thinking through what you saw and and then really diving in when you have time, right? These are changes that you're going to implement in the next season. So once you're done in the fall and you have time and the season is over, then really digging in and making the new decisions as opposed to trying to squeeze it in on an already packed day. That's all good stuff. And Brian, you also make a really nice point in our presentations together when you talk about documentation, today's technology, speak to photographs. Yeah, so, you know, um, a picture's worth a thousand words, right? Um, and we all have a, a really high quality camera in our pocket. Um, and I would even say if a picture's worth a thousand words, a, a video might be worth a million. Um, and we have high quality video cameras in our pockets all the time. So even if you are just like taking pictures with your phone or take a video and narrate what you're seeing, your observations, because, again, we're not going to remember. Like It's a great um, piece of technology that we all um, have available to us. Um, walk your crop with show explaining your different treatments, um, what you're seeing. Maybe you don't have the data at your fingertips, but. Um, your observations as the grower are, are gold. You, you know what was going on there. You know what you're seeing. And then you can refer to that um, in, in the future. Um, but don't, don't fall into the, to the, the, the void of what we all do is we take pictures on our phones. And then um, you know, six months later, we're looking through our phone that's full of thousands of pictures and we don't know what they are. You know, download those phone, those pictures or a video onto your computer, label them really good in a, um, in a folder that's, that's research, geranium, fertility, like whatever, whatever it is that, that you're, um, that you're testing. Well, you guys, I think we can say that's a wrap, um, Brian, I want to thank you for taking time and sharing your experience, expertise with us. Michelle, um, any one of these topics that we discussed is almost worthy of a breakout episode in its, on its own. Um, we may revisit this concept uh, in the future, but why don't you go ahead and, and wrap up today's discussion? 
thank you very much for joining us today, Brian. I know that you and Peter have done this before. I am honored to be part of the conversation. I think I learned a bunch. I hope that I gave my own interesting perspective. Um, so if we're ever back on the road and you do this again, um, I gave you more points to help explain how this um, affects the grower's bottom line, because we want to have great plants, but we also want to have profitable farms. Thank you for joining us on The Grower and the Economist, um, and we hope to have you back soon. All right. My pleasure. It was a great, great time. Hey, Brian, thank you again. Say hi to Tina for me. I will. 